Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Maria Elena Botazzi. She's an Associate Dean at the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas. And we're going to talk about uh, her work. So, Maria, thank you for coming. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be with you. Oh, good. Well, tell me about your, your research. What are you working on? Well, I am a vaccine scientist. Uh, in addition, I specialize in tropical infectious and emerging diseases. So as you could imagine, you know, we are very well consumed with developing vaccines currently against uh, COVID-19. But we also have uh, probably half a dozen uh, other vaccines that we develop in our vaccine portfolio, including parasitic uh, disease uh, type of vaccines like hookworm disease, schistosomiasis disease, um, leishmaniasis. So you name it, all the different uh, uh, very interesting uh, microbes, we probably have a vaccine development program at our vaccine center. Okay, and then what? Uh, how do the vaccines work? I know they're different in each one, but what are like traditional vaccine methods? Like, how do they work? What's in them, et cetera? Wonderful. Yes. So, you know, our vaccine center has a mission to ensure that the vaccines that we um, develop and we try to, of course, move from the laboratory into the clinic and then eventually to the, you know, to be used in communities are really vaccines that are not only safe, efficacious, but they are also affordable and suitable for where you need them, which primarily is low middle income countries and populations living um, certainly in uh, poor conditions or that may not have easy access to healthcare. So we therefore try to use what is Consider conventional type of technologies, 
Um, and by conventional, we mean uh, types of technologies that are already widely used to make other vaccines. And in our case, uh, they're subunit vaccines or, or vaccines that are based on recombinant protein technologies. As an example, vaccines against uh, the hepatitis B um, are made uh, using that same conventional platform. The vaccine for human papillomavirus is also um, using the same platform. And therefore, there's a lot of knowledge. Um, there's uh, evidence of uh, their safety. There's a lot of manufacturers around the world that can use these types of platforms. And that's why we prefer them. Even though, as you know now, uh, we're also always looking for innovations and we also look in parallel um, new platforms like the RNA technology and sometimes even combination of conventional and newer technologies. Okay, so what are what's an example of how some of the vaccines are made? What's the you know what's in them and how do they work? Sure. So, for example, uh, when uh, we, of course, heard that uh, this uh, pandemic is it was caused by a SARS two coronavirus, we initially start looking at its sequence. So, of course, looking at its genetic code, we identified the receptor binding domain of that SARS-2 coronavirus. We therefore then synthesize that genetic code uh, synthetically, and we uh, clone it or we insert it into a, a vector, a vector that then it can be used to transform yeast cells. So our, our way of production is using uh, yeast. Then the yeast becomes a producer and, you know, it decodifies the, the genetic code of this vector that contains the, the receptor binding domain gene for the SARS-CoV-2. And the yeast starts expressing uh, the protein and it expresses by secreting it into a culture supernatant, which is, you know, a little bit of an analogy. It's like brewing beer, right? So we know that we use yeast instead of, uh, of course, brewing alcohol. Um, we actually brew proteins that are being secreted in the supernatant. After that, we purify them, right? We get rid of all the, you know, non-essential, you know, yeast-derived types of proteins. We only um, select specifically for, in this case, the receptor-binding domain protein of the SARS-CoV-2. And then we uh, put it together with what we call a, a formulation or an adjuvant process. And the formulation in our hands is also quite conventional. We utilize aluminum. Um, a very specific uh, type of aluminum is called aluminum hydroxide, also widely used in many vaccines. And then we do what we call an alum plus. So it's the protein, alum, plus a second immunostimulant. And in our case, uh, now that we, of course, are advancing uh, in the clinic, the company that is producing this vaccine also is partnering with a company called Dynavax, which has a deoxynucleotide, which is an immunostimulant. So right now we have the vaccine that was uh, engineered at Baylor College of Medicine. We transferred it to a manufacturing company called Biological E, and then Biological E partner with um, this company called Dynavax, and ultimately the vaccine is a yeast-produced protein with an aluminum formulation together with an immunostimulant, which is CPG or a deoxynucleotide. Well, why would you need an immune stimulant if the vaccine is supposed to stimulate the immune system in the first place? Because every pathogen is different, right? And we know that you need also a very broad immunological response. And as you know, immunity is really induced by 
balancing cellular immunity with humoral immunity, which is, of course, antibody-mediated type of immunity. We also know that we probably need a lot of cytokines and other things. And you need to make sure that your formulation is inducing, first of all, a balanced response, but also a response that is also robust and that ultimately it will trigger also the cells and the milieu that will permit for memory, right? For, you know, for it to last a long time. And scientists, as they were studying coronaviruses, they all always have uh, recognized that you need a balanced response, which means what we call a Th1 balanced response with a Th2, which probably requires not only neutralizing antibodies, but also very specific types of um, cells that are producing very specific types of cytokines. And we know that when you use proteins alone, generally don't are not very good immunogens by themselves. When you put them together with aluminum, usually you have a very high level of antibodies, but they're what it's called Th2 uh, skewed. But when you add a second immunostimulant, in this case, a CPG, you're skewing them towards Th1, you're raising the robustness of the response, you're activating also the cellular immunity, and we're now seeing that you can possibly get you know, very high level of neutralizing antibodies that are efficacious against, of course, the coronavirus, but at the same time, most likely also confers a long-lasting immunity. Why um, are vaccines injected? Why not inhaled? You know, let's say, especially for like a flu-like virus or coronavirus, if the method of getting it in the first place is to inhale it, why inject it? That's a very good point. And in fact, you're right. The traditional ways or the majority of the traditional ways, even though there have been vaccines that are given orally, like the oral polio, for example, vaccine, uh, most of the vaccines, you're right, they're injectable. They're injectable intramuscularly. And that's because, remember, you want to, once the vaccine is in your uh, muscle or intramuscularly, it attracts, right? It, you know, these immunostimulants also are attractive of the cells and all the different things that you want to bring to a site. And then our, you know, uh, systemic immunological system can distribute this not only in the blood, but also eventually the lymph nodes and goes and basically provides uh, protection all over our body. You know, you, of course, can do the same if you give a vaccine orally, but then you have to also consider that you have to, therefore it gets ingested and you have to protect it against the acids from your stomach, for example, or, you know, the processing. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. If you eat it, I understand in a pill form, but if you nebulize it and breathe it in. There's another option, which you're right, which, you know, there's intranasal 
or you know there there's other ways of delivering and right now they're all being evaluated in fact there are a lot of groups that are trying to look for these not only alternative technologies to how to make the prototypes of vaccines but also novel ways of how to deliver the vaccines and you're right you know so there's even the technologies right now that are looking at patches right that there's really not an injection but actually like a, a small patch so yes and this is where i think the future will will take us where we're going to have different alternatives including also this will also probably benefit the cold chain requirements right as you know unfortunately the rna technology right now still require ultra cold re- temperatures the most conventional utilizes storage uh, in refrigeration but the ideal is also find ways where you can store a room temperature and most likely if you for instance in- introduce lyophilization or in- introduce some way of drying or some way of putting together a way of delivering that you can uh, not need to keep it refrigerated, that also would be ideal. So there's always new things, new knowledge that we need to build. And of course, then the, the difficulty is it may work for some vaccines because, of course, you're targeting a different pathogen that maybe enters your body in different ways. Like you said, you're right. If it enters through your a respiratory system is very different if it's a parasite that penetrates your skin or if it's a bacteria that lives in your intestine. You know, so there's many different uh, considerations to determine which would be the best dose, the best route, the best technology. And of course, what is the mechanism of the immunity that you want to trigger? Well, I mean, if, if I'm going to get sick by, again, in, in inhaling aerosolized droplets, there's nothing that can be done about that. That's just how I'm going to get sick or how I'm going to be exposed to it if I can. So I guess I would think that just mimicking the the way in which you get sick with a particular disease might be more, might work better. Yes. You know, it it does make sense, except that you most likely also require some level of systemic response. For example, if you were to just focus on COVID-19 as a respiratory disease, you probably would miss uh, the fact that this virus, it's now we see that it is not even primarily a respiratory virus alone. It, it's a virus that has uh, repercussions in many organs, right? In your cardiac system, in your in, uh, digestive system, in your coagulation system. So it, it's a multi-syndromic, um, in this case, uh, using COVID as an example. So you have to also uh, ensure that you can induce a, a broad protection, and not necessarily just limited because if then, you know, you can have the virus or the pathogen escape. So you need to be able to induce the most comprehensive, focused, directed, robust, but at the end of the day, also quite comprehensive immune response. And, and usually when you uh, inject and you initiate a systemic response, uh, you tend to be quite, you know, comprehensive of covering all your bases, especially when you don't know, you know, sometimes, you know, the full extent of the pathogenesis of a given, you know, pathogen. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. All right. And then earlier on, you talked about them being, uh, you know, safe and actually working, being efficacious. So how is that traditionally tested or ascertained? 
Oh, so there's a whole series of uh, very arduous and complex uh, steps of events. Of course, you start in the laboratory and doing things, of course, not only in, you know, tissue culture plates, what we call preclinical evaluations, sometimes using also preclinical in vivo models, sometimes in vitro models. You have to, of course, create what we call the proof of principle that, you know, in, in your laboratory, some such technology could work as a potential product. Then it, it shifts into what we call the critical path of activities that also have to be enabling the opportunity of presenting the data to the regulatory agencies. And for that, then you require probably materials that, are, that have a higher quality, that require a lot of characterization, that you, know, you for example, have to have all sorts of uh, what we call the chemistry understanding, the manufacturing understanding the scalability, how do you produce them, uh, that you can produce them constantly uh, in the same way that you can reproduce. And then, of course, you also have these, what they're called toxicology studies, that you do them prior to even going to humans. They're very regulated. And then you, you put together all these packages of information, and you ask, the, of course, our regulators, the US FDA, to evaluate the data, they evaluate them, you know, again, at the level of, you know, the concept, the mechanism that you're proposing, the process that you're using to make your vaccine, where, how you've been tested it, how, if you tested it in this toxicology, who manufactured it, how much the quality, purity and stability does it have? And then they basically give you permission to do a, a very small first in human safety evaluation, also evaluating a little bit the immunogenicity. So that's the phase one clinical trial. Then after the phase one, you expand, uh, increase the number of people you evaluated, always looking at the safety, but maybe there you do evaluate the dose, the schedule, the route, and then you select something that it's the most beneficial, the safest, you know, the one that induces the highest immune response, and then you go into uh, the large phase three clinical trials. But then it doesn't really stop there. You know, in certain instances, especially when you want to do a a vaccine that is uh, widely used, including globally and in low middle income countries, you do either a a phase four, which is even larger, uh, where you already incorporate more pharmacovigilance. And then, of course, you continue evaluating its safety upon uh, achievement of licensure, where you basically continue evaluating how safe and how effective the vaccines are. So if you look at even vaccines that we've been using for, you know, more than, you know, 50 years, again, the example of hepatitis B, every time hepatitis B vaccines are being distributed, there are these methods uh, where you capture all the pharmacovigilance. And and that's what provides the body of data of how safe not only the platforms are, but also specifically a vaccine in question. Okay. Well, what about efficacy? What, you know, what, what do they look for in terms of markers? Do they expose people to the virus once they've been vaccinated to see if it'll keep them safe or what happens? So you bring up a very interesting concept. So normally, you evaluate like we're doing today with COVID-19 is, of course, there is virus circulating in the communities. And so what you do is you don't artificially, you know, infect person, you, you vaccinate someone, 
and then you let the person go live, you know, as they would normally go about and uh, they would get naturally infected. And that's how then, for example, the COVID-19 vaccines were identified of how protective they are, right? So they were, their characteristics was if you get vaccinated, do you protect the individual when they get naturally exposed to the virus, do you protect it against symptomatic disease? Do the individuals get symptoms? And if they do get symptoms, how severe are those symptoms? And we saw, of course, that all the vaccines that have been authorized, they clearly practically almost make an individual that when you get infected post-vaccination, you actually do not have any symptoms or have very, very mild symptoms at all, probably even none. So that's a measure of you know efficacy. Secondarily, they also are evaluating, okay, so you do get infected after you get your vaccine. How well do you, you know, how much do you get infected? Do you really get infected with a, you know, a lot of virus? Can you transmit that virus? And we now are seeing more and more that, of course, you know, because you're blocking the virus replication with the vaccine, you probably are not allowing the virus to replicate very uh, uh, rapidly, and therefore you also um, reduce the amounts of virus transmission. So that's how they measure efficacy. Now, you also brought the question, can you vaccinate someone and then artificially evaluate uh, how it, they respond if you infect them? And those are you, techniques called uh, challenge uh, control challenge studies. You know, they've been used to evaluate various vaccines, for example, the malaria vaccine. We have a challenge model for hookworm disease. We have, you know, we have various challenge models. And there you're absolutely right. You, you recruit like you do for a clinical trial. You, you vaccinate individuals. And then again, in a controlled, regulated manner, you in the laboratory or in the clinic, you expose them to the pathogen, and then you evaluate how efficacious the vaccines are. Of course, you know, the decision of which, when controlled human challenge models are applicable, of course, it depends on the pathogen. It depends if you can measure certainly the disease, and also if you have maybe an alternative cure in the event that you want to stop the, the, the trial. There has to be, of course, a measurement of the risks and the benefits of doing those control infection models. But most of the times uh, when you develop vaccines, you rely on the fact that you let individuals expo- you know, live their daily lives and then you measure the protection once they get naturally exposed to the pathogen. All right. I mean, for COVID, it seems like they didn't want to let anyone be exposed to it at all by locking them down. Now that they're, you know, forcing the vaccine on people, um, they're just saying, okay, now go out in the community and are they evaluating people that have been vaccinated to see if they're going to get sick again? Or what's the protocol here with this specifically? Well, they've been certainly vaccines are being evaluated throughout during the clinical trials. And you're right, because this is a new virus. You know, it's very difficult to establish, you know, control infections, right? You don't want to, you know, do this unless you really understand the pathogen. We, as you know, as we're, we're basically evaluating at the same time, we're also learning, you know, the real pathogenesis of such virus. The fact that it is, like I mentioned, is a syndromic virus, you know, makes it, you know, quite complicated to, because, you know, we're, we're seeing also how, uh, clinically, you know, it's not easy, you know, especially in individuals who 
have underlying factors that, you know, that disease is very severe. And of course, you don't want people, you know, to die. And, you know, so, and, and now we're seeing that the benefit of the vaccine is really starting to be shown especially in areas that we know that there's a lot of people that have been vaccinated, where we're already now seeing that curve of the virus is starting to reduce, that we've seen reductions in hospitalizations and in deaths, while at the same time people, are, you know, we know that the virus is still circulating in the community. So it's slowly really interrupting the uh, infections as well as the transmission of the virus. And they're excluding various states here in the U.S., that we're already seeing the impact as well, of course, as... How do you know the vaccine's doing it? It could be many other factors, you know? Oh, because you can measure the immune the immunity. So, you know, there are uh, now big studies where you evaluate the immunological response of naturally infected individuals. And especially when you take that, you know, we call them convalescent uh, sera, and you evaluate them to see, can it really neutralize the virus? Can you neutralize the variants? Concern that now, of course, as you know, the virus has, the virus also has evolutionized. And we see that, you know, that natural immunity is not as robust as we're seeing with the um, immunity that it is uh, induced by the vaccine. And it's because it's very common that, you know, if you are exposed to the entire pathogen, compared to maybe directing, and again, like you said, modulating the immunological response to be very specific to target what we call the, the soft spot of the virus, right? You know, what we really needed to block is the spike protein, because that's what the virus uses to, you know, enter our cells. So if you really block that interaction, you know, very purposely, we're not allowing the virus to be able to get into our cells, which is eventually what triggers all the pathogenesis. When you just get naturally infected with the virus, your your immune system is kind of, you know, uh, not really focused, is trying to respond against all sorts of, you know, components of the virus. And so the immune response ultimately is a little bit more diluted and maybe not as strong. Some individuals do better than others, of course, you know, we've seen that you know, there are a percentage of individuals who don't get sick, which is great. The problem is that when you don't really know how to determine if if an individual is to get sick or not, because we don't have any markers of pathogenesis to decide, oh, you know, person A will get sick, person B will not get sick. So it's really kind of playing a Russian roulette game where you, we don't have a way of predicting who would die or who would get severely sick. So what we're trying, you know, with a vaccination, with you know, it's is to try to level the, the the field where we know that at least everybody, in the event that they would get infected, we know that therefore everyone would basically be asymptomatic and not have any severe illness, and no, and ideally also no long-term sequelae from the disease. So what's uh, I mean, people that are already sick that have recovered, are they going to force them to have vaccines or are they going to leave them alone with their natural immunity? I mean, what's the, what goes on there? The recommendation right now is that again, we're seeing that slowly that immunity weans away. So the recommendation is that the vaccine induced immunity would actually give an additional benefit to those who may have been exposed. It also depends on when they were exposed with which, uh, you know, variant of the virus they were exposed. So I think that, you know, it's certainly a beneficial for everybody, including those who may have already been exposed to the virus.
Okay, well, very good. What uh, what do you expect to see from the uh, you know the vaccine pipeline and all this over the next you know year or so? The good news is that you know we we still there's a lot of groups that are advancing different uh, types of vaccines using different methodologies. We're going to learn a lot more about, of course, you know, the, the virus. Ultimately, what we really need to do now is ensure that we increase production so that we can increase the distribution uh, globally. Because un- unless we don't distribute globally, we won't. We will see kind of like Apache world where some countries will have still so much virus circulating that it's going to be very difficult to interrupt or. Uh, really eliminate, you know, this virus. So I think that what we're going to see is a ramp up of more production, more vaccine candidates coming into evaluation and approval. And then ideally, slowly, as we see more distribution of vaccines, we can also uh, have a little bit more confidence of removing also the non-pharmaceutical interventions and therefore start, um, you know, meeting, you know, again, or, you know, going off with our more normal life as we used to before having to distance or using masks. Sure. Well, very good. Uh, Maria, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So they can uh, look at our work if they go at uh, Baylor College of Medicine website and look for uh, the National School of Tropical Medicine, or if they go to Texas Children's Hospital, and we are, uh, we, you can find us in the Department of Pediatrics section of Pediatric Tropical Medicine, and you will read about all the work that we do, not only on neglected tropical disease vaccines, but also emerging viral vaccines, including coronavirus vaccine. Okay, well, very good. Well, Maria, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you and look forward to listening. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.